Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Yesterday I was driving up north of our house, just a little bit, country road there, and there's a couple of, of these, you know, dips or not, uh, bumps in the road, and, and uh, I come up over a bump, and as soon as I could see what was in the road ahead of me, there was a dead skunk right there, right? Square onto my car, and I went, like that, way around. I thought, I don't know what the ground clearance is on my car, but I do not want to touch the skunk with my car. I, my car is black, but I don't want to have to paint a white line on top of it. A couple of weeks ago, I was going down the road, and I saw a live skunk in the daytime. Now, I'm pretty sure they're nocturnal. And uh, so, boy, there's a live skunk. And skunks, I don't think they're real fast. And he's kind of walking around there. And I thought, oh, Lord, boy, I got real slow and real careful. I thought, I do not want to hit the skunk. I've never done that. I hope I never do. My dog came home all skunked up. But uh, it's easier to wash a dog in tomato juice in a car. I couldn't tell which way he was going to go, and and boy, I didn't want to have that on my car. You don't have to get real close to a skunk to take on the smell. I mean, even though I dodged around yesterday, as I drove away, it must have, the, the vacuum must have sucked that right into your car, you know. I think, oh boy, I don't want that. In Second Timothy ta- chapter two, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about a different kind of skunk and about avoiding it. Because it is far more deadly than just the smell that we get from the four-legged kind. And this is the skunk of heresy and the skunk of heretics. Let's uh, look here at 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 14, but we'll just be considering verses uh, 19 and following. Remind them of these things charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be a journeyman in God's word, not an arguer about things that have no value. Verse 16, but shun, stay away from, avoid false doctrine. He describes false doctrine as profane and idle babblings, or vain or empty babblings, for they will increase. They will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer, or more literally, gangrene. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort. They have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Last week we learned from verses 16 through 18 that false doctrine, which we call heresy, it's not that word isn't used here, but it's used elsewhere in the scripture. False doctrine that we call heresy is dangerous. God says that false doctrine causes sin, 
and it spreads like cancer or gangrene, and it has to be cut off. He said it's so dangerous that it even turns some people's faith upside down. I had a friend in Seattle, not somebody who attended our church, and this fellow had been part of a church up in Burien called the Community Chapel. The Community Chapel was an extreme left-sided Pentecostal or charismatic church. And by that, I mean the pastor was regularly and frequently getting messages from God, which were not contained in the Bible, including this doctrine, which became their signature doctrine. The pastor said he had the ability to know who everybody's perfect spiritual partner is. And he would look at a fine couple like Wayne and Meg, and he'd say, Now, Meg... He's a nice guy, but he's not your perfect spiritual partner. And he would go look at somebody else in the church and say, now that guy is your partner. And he'd find some woman in church and say, now that woman is your spiritual partner. And when people came to church, they would dance in the church service with their spiritual partners. This was, this was videotaped and shown, I believe, on Channel 4. They did an undercover investigation of this, and they, they have video, you know, kind of that you know, that video that's taken from down here, so it's not too good of people dancing in church. Now, we're Baptists, we don't dance. <laughs> we certainly don't dance with other people's wives at church or anywhere else. Because this fellow got continuing revelations about what was appropriate between the spiritual partners. And the dancing was just the beginning and the ending was adultery. And because of that, because of the obvious ruin that was coming to marriages, there was suicide, there was divorce, and then there came lawsuits. My friend was part of that church and was being trained in their Bible Institute to be a pastor in a church plant off of this church. And he was very close to graduating and planting a church when this whole thing exploded. And apparently maybe some people didn't really know everything that was going on because it exploded in lawsuits and divorces and, and all kinds of things. And you know what happened to my friend, my friend? Because of that false doctrine, his faith was overthrown. Now, I don't think he would claim he became an unbeliever, but I'll tell you what, I knew him for probably 10 years after that happened, and he rarely darkened the door of a church. His marriage got to the point where his wife left him, and it wasn't because of adultery. It was because of his personal mood and so on. When the Scripture says, verse 14 there are strivings about words that result in the ruin of the hearer. When it says in verse 16, false doctrine increases to more ungodliness. And when it says in verse 18, false doctrine overthrows the faith of some, you need to understand that false doctrine ruins people. Sometimes we get thinking that we're arguing about doctrinal points because it's we want to be right and declare everybody else wrong. 
There are some issues we should not be arguing about. But there are some issues we should be arguing about. And the Apostle Paul says, Timothy, if you're going to be a strong, godly leader of other Christians, you have to be careful what you think, where your truth base is, and careful enough to know the truth so you can avoid the heresy. False doctrine ruins people. But look at verse 19. It's like the Apostle Paul, he's been weighing in on this heavy stuff, heavy stuff, heavy stuff, and then he goes, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. The wonderful message we have to understand today is this, heresy cannot destroy the body of Christ. And I'm using the term body of Christ today as a synonym for the church with a capital C. If you're not familiar with this doctrine, God says that every single Christian of all time, every person since Christ died, was buried and rose again, every person who believes in him comes into the whole body of Christ. Sometimes we call, we call it the universal church, all Christians. Now I'm not saying everybody who calls themselves a Christian is in the body of Christ, but everybody who has truly believed in Christ is put into the body of Christ. We are a piece of that body. There's a sense in which we are a, a miniature of the whole. There should be the same things going on in this miniature as there is in the whole. But, but it's, when I use the term body of Christ, I'm not saying just us. But I'm saying all of the Christians who are part of the body of Christ. And the great truth here is this. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands... Even though some people's faith will be overthrown by false doctrine, the foundation that God has built in the world, the church, stands and it has this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. I believe that this, this reference here, the foundation of God, is a reference to both the body of Christ as a whole and the individual members of that body. And so the foundation of the body of Christ stands. The foundation of the body of Christ, one of the places it's referred to is here in Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. It's talking about Gentiles coming into God's family, who used to be called strangers and foreigners. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The word cornerstone in the scripture is an important construction term from the day. Now, I'm building a big toy in my backyard. Um, a big toy is, you know, something for kids to climb on, for the grandkids, so hopefully they won't climb on my furniture, you know, so much, but they'll go out and climb on the big toy. And the way that I did it is I, I, I had four posts put in the ground in cement. Now, when I started the process, I thought I was going to do one thing, and then as I started building, I realized, no, that won't work, so I'm doing another thing. I'm a one-stick-at-a-time builder. I don't need no stinking blueprints. <laughs> but I'm not building a house. I'm building a big toy for the kids. <laughs> but you know... Um, don't get this wrong, I'm not comparing myself to the Lord, but in terms of a construction method, that's how they built back then. They took one stone that was called the cornerstone, and they laid it down, boom. And, and they laid that stone 
the direction they wanted the walls to go. They laid it level. That was the beginning point of the house right there. And God says, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of this household called the body of Christ. Everything is built off of him and on him. And in keeping that metaphor of building, he says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And from there, the next piece that God built was the apostles and prophets. Why? Because they're the ones who not only were given the word to give to us, but validated the word through prophecy and so on. And so all of this, this is the foundation of the church of God. Now we're multiple layers up, hundreds of years down the road. God's been building this, this household called the body of Christ. But Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. That's where God started. That's what we look to as the foundation of who we are and what we are. And when we think about not only the foundation of the body of Christ, but we think about the strength of that body of Christ. When he says in 2 Timothy, he says, the foundation of God stands. Why is that? Well, it's because of this truth. Christ said to the apostles, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now that this rock is not talking about Peter, it's talking about his confession. What is his confession? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It goes right back to that cornerstone image. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And Jesus said, that's what I'm going to build my church on. And because I'm going to build it on that, what is the, the, the strength that comes with it? The gates of Hades shall not prevail. Where does false doctrine come from? It comes from the gates of Hades. It comes from Satan inspiring people with ideas and concepts that attack the word. We looked at last week in, in, uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. Satan himself went and talked to Eve. Now Satan puts forth ideas that filters out through the world. It comes back and presses on the church. And sometimes that false doctrine overthrows the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation stands and it will not move. We could just think of very simply about what the church has survived. 300 years of hard persecution right after the time of Christ under the Roman Empire that pressed Christians to deny the unique place of Christ in salvation. We often think of the, uh, you know, the martyrdom of Christians, but do you know why they were martyred? It was because they would not turn to the Roman emperor and say, you are God, and Jesus is just one of the many gods in the Roman pantheon. And because they would not turn to the Roman empire or the Roman emperor and worship him as the human embodiment of God, they were killed. And that went on for 300 years. And then, all of a sudden, one day, a Roman emperor woke up and said, he saw a vision in the night of a cross, and it said, in this sign, conquer. And all of a sudden, he went, we shouldn't be oppressing the Christians. We should be forcing everybody that we go out to do war with to become Christians. 
And so that's what went on for the next 1,200 years. And the church that we call the Roman Catholic Church today was founded through the Roman Empire, basically, and they went out and forced people to convert. And so on the one hand, there was this, this doctrinal push, deny the Lord and embrace Rome. Now there's a, there's a doctrinal push that comes from power. You can be hand in glove with the Roman emperor right here. You just have to follow our priorities for the world. And that was a tremendous pressure, and it had a very negative impact on the, on the organized church. And so when the Reformation started, it, the people who were trying to reform, the people who were simply trying to print the Bible in the common language of people, like English, were persecuted by the majority church because they were afraid of losing their power. And then the Renaissance happened about that same time, the rise of scientific, rational thinking, which led to higher criticism, which attacked the Bible and the turn of the 20th century. And today, we have Satan inspiring worldly ideas that are infiltrating the church in the idea of doctrines about how to grow the church or how we should dumb down the message so it doesn't offend anybody. And one author put it this way, It is a miracle of miracles that Christian people, having been what they have been and being what they are, that the church of God has not been annihilated long ago. And so when God says, I'm going to build my church, and when Paul, by God's inspiration, say the solid foundation of God stands, we understand that error may spread like cancer, but it cannot destroy the foundation that God has laid in the church. Heresy can overthrow the faith of individuals. It can even overthrow whole churches. But it cannot overthrow the body of Christ. Heresy cannot destroy the body of Christ. And heresy cannot destroy the members of the body of Christ. That's you and I. Look at verse 19 of 2 Timothy 2 again. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. A seal in the time of Christ was a, a stamp of authenticity. It was also a stamp of control. As in some government ruler or some rich person would put a seal on a document and you cannot mess with that under penalty of the law. God says the foundation, the body of Christ, has been sealed with this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. What does that mean? Would you look at the word know right there and take a note on it? The word knows should be to our English way of thinking in a past tense form. The Lord knew those who are his. Um, it's in the aorist tense in the Greek, which is a tense of completion, which means God knows us in some completed past tense kind of way. Not that he never knows us now, but he's already known us in the past time. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about this from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and without blame. That's a synonym for being saved, for being made righteous in Christ. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. 
when we ask the question, why don't real believers fall and give up on the Christian life, it's because God knew them in eternity past, and He determined that they would come to faith in Christ, and He did what was necessary to get them to faith in Christ. When Jesus was here on earth, He put it this way, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Do you catch the double protection there? He says, my Father is greater than all, and I and Him are one, and you are in my hands, which means you're also in the Father's hands, which means you cannot be snatched away. You can't jump from the Father's hands. He is not that poor of a shepherd. Jesus said, we are sealed. Here's the seal in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. God isn't up in heaven going, hmm, I wonder if Dave Lunsford's going to make the trip. Boy, I sure hope he does. God's not like that. God reached down from heaven and drew me to Him and caused me to believe in Him, and I believed in Him, and now God is going like this on my life. And He's going to go like this all the way until I see Him face to face. Now, I would readily admit there are times when I went like this, pushing on the edges. And there's times maybe got way out here, and God just went, God says, if you are a child of God, you have been sealed, and your faith will not be overthrown. The seal of God protects us from eternal loss. Nevertheless, the solid foundation stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. God's children cannot be taken from Him. But there's, a, there's an element of action here for us as well. Heresy demands a forceful response from God's people. Look at the second half of the seal, verse 19. Having this seal, number one, the Lord knows those who are His. Number two, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, he's not talking about earning salvation. He's talking about demonstrating what has already been put inside of you. Heresy is always around us, and heresy leads to sin, and heresy can overthrow the faith of some. Because of that, we must respond to false doctrine and those who peddle it with a clear separation. He says we must depart from iniquity. Now, I understand that the word iniquity or the word sin is used in many ways, and it refers to many things in the New Testament. Here, in the context, the primary application is this. Separate yourself from those who believe heresy, who believe false doctrine. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 
That's why there's scripture like this. In fact, before we get there, let's turn to 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to turn to this passage because if you're not familiar with it, I want you to be so. I want you to mark it in your Bible or on your notes. This is a watershed passage about how we are supposed to live in relation to the sinful world around us. 2 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. When we read this passage, those of us who have been in Christ for a while, one of our automatic applications is to marriage. We go, oh, that's right, we should, you know, a believer should not marry a non-Christian. That's true. But we need to go a little deeper and recognize the root issue in this principle. And the root issue is one of, of how strongly we are connected to unbelievers. He uses the word yoke, and he's referring to two animals who would plow together. In that day, most likely he's talking about two uh, large cows or oxen. I'm not familiar with all the breed separation, but put in your, in your mental image a, a big, strong uh, bull that's going to pull a farm implement, and they're going to put two of them together. And that's a yoke of oxen. And they would pull the farm implement. And he says, as a Christian, you should not get in the yoke together with an unbeliever. And he, he uses a series of illustrations. He said, you, um, verse, he says, how can you bring together righteousness and lawlessness? How can you bring together light and darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? That's another name for Satan. Or how can a believer come together with an unbeliever? He says, you are a believer, do not do not get yoked up to an unbeliever. Now, marriage is, is certainly one of those yokes. When we get married, we are tied to someone. We, we have to walk together. That's God's instruction. And so if we marry an unbeliever and the unbeliever wants to go that way and the believer wants to go that way, it can't happen. And the believer is pulled by the unbeliever. And we have to say no to that. But this principle goes much broader than just that. And it comes right to what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy. Let every person who calls himself a Christian depart from iniquity, from the iniquity of false doctrine. Many of us in Christianity somehow have said, well... I know they don't believe this and they don't believe that, but we really have a lot in common. 
And it's really become unfashionable for a church to say, sorry, we can't join hands with your church in ministry because your church teaches heresy. As individuals and as a church, we need to look very carefully at the belief systems of people around us and be careful how close we get. Now, the error, if I could, uh, if I could characterize a m- misunderstanding of the Scripture, I would put it this way, and I'm going to overgeneralize, but I'm not on bad ground. Okay? And I would overgeneralize this way. In the generation before me, The error was called isolation. We're Christians. We don't smoke or chew or talk to the people that do. When I was a kid, it was a serious debate as to whether we would eat in a restaurant that served liquor. Because that's wicked, and we don't want to go in there and get along with wickedness. Okay? I'm not saying it was a foolish debate. I'm just saying that there was this this sense of isolation. We need to stay as far away as we can from anything or anyone that's sinful. And one of the downsides of that is you've got to talk to unbelievers if you're going to share the gospel with them. Okay. Now, if I could overgeneralize again and go to the other extreme, what has happened in contemporary Christianity is they're saying, Not only must we open ourselves up to the ways of the world and make our church services comfortable for unbelievers, we're just going to go way after that. So when they walk in here, there will be nothing to give them discomfort. I told you about the church that had a secular rock band, and they had hot dogs and beer or wine, and for your $25 donation, you got a beer or a wine and a hot dog, listen to secular rock band, to raise money to drill wells in some third world country. That's, in my opinion, way over here. And just embracing all of this ungodliness. And it goes along with how much... uh, how much of various kinds of thought patterns are embraced, and it goes along with an unwillingness to ever stand up and say, look, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Oh, I've got to find a nicer way to say that, Dave. So you're telling me Jesus messed up in the way that he said it, because I just quoted him. You see, isolation, that's not godly. Uh... Synthesis? Integration? That's not godly. But between these two somewhere is a hand reaching out to an unbeliever saying, I love you, brother or sister, and I want to bring you to Christ. But there's also some kind of a wall here that says, I am not going to get so close to unbelievers or unbelieving or churches that have watered things down or belief systems that are messed up that it pulls me over. Because that's what happens. He says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Somehow, there has to be a line over which we don't step in our behavior and our belief, even when we are trying to get a hold of an unbeliever and drag them into the kingdom. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Thessalonians, If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him. Why? So that he will be ashamed, let me 
let me synthesize some scripture here and say this, so he'll be ashamed and hopefully turn to the truth. Yet don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother, you see? See, somehow, my job isn't to find every Christian who disagrees with the scripture and then cut him off, more so to say, I've got to be careful how close I get, but at the same time, I need to be going, come on over to the truth, brother. First Corinthians 15 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. I'll give you a way in which this concerns me. At our pastors and wives seminar, our retreat, one of my good friends, who I haven't seen for a while, is going to, he lives in another part of the country now, and he is going to take a doctoral program for pastors at an out-and-out liberal seminary. Now he said, I know what I believe, and I want to study heresy from the heretics themselves. I don't want to get it secondhand. I'm pretty sure my friend is real strong. He's not, I mean, you know, you could line up a hundred pastors and some of them are stronger than others. I understand that. And he's on the strong end. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. No matter how strong you think you are, the way to interact with ungodliness, whether it's ungodly doctrine, ungodly behavior, is to step back and call people over. (laughs) Because if you get over there hand in glove with these people, they're going to drag you down. I know it's a balancing act. I know it's a challenge. I understand that. But there's a reason this is important. And the reason is here. Heresy can keep us from usefulness to God. Would you look at 2 Timothy again, please, and look at the last couple of verses that we read, starting in verse 20. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Now, he's using a common illustration. He said, at your home, you have, let me just put it in the vernacular. He said, you've got some buckets you use to pick up weeds. And then you've got some bowls you use to serve soup in. You've got some shovels that you dig dirt with, and you've got some shovels that feed your face. Okay, that's what he's saying. He's saying, in a a big house... There are vessels of gold and silver, special implements, and then there's wood and clay. Some for honorable things, some for dishonorable. Now, we don't think of shoveling dirt as being dishonorable, or the dirt is, we don't think of it as dirty when it's in a garden. You know what I'm saying? But in their time, they did. And there were things that were considered kind of dirty and profane and base, and then there were things that were special. And that's what he's trying to draw this picture. He says, you have nice dishes that you would not use to dig dirt with. And you have things that you dig dirt that you would not eat off of. He says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, he's talking about you now, if you will cleanse yourself from the vessels of dishonor, you will be a vessel of honor, set apart and useful to the master, prepared for every good work. He says, if you hang around 
with the dirt bucket, the common thing, the thing that's not right, you are not going to be prepared to serve the filet mignon. And so he says, what you need, and what he's saying is, those who perpetrate false doctrine are the dishonorable vessels. The word vessel meaning a person. They are carrying this truth, but it's false truth. And he says, you have to cleanse yourself from that in order to be useful to God. Because if you interact with this too much, you are going to be dragged into it, and God's over here going, man, I I got a job for you to do, but I'm going to have to give it to somebody else because you're not ready. You've been investing yourself in that false doctrine either on purpose or by accident, and you have not been investing yourself in God's truth. And so you are an unuseful implement. Here is the place where you could be useful, but can't do it. And you know what? I I honestly, I tried my best to think of an illustration that would get this across to you, and I can't without being foolish or silly. So let me just tell you the principle. God... The God of the universe wants to use you to do his work. Can you imagine that? I don't know who is important in your life. I don't know if you're a fan of some government official somewhere and you think, boy, if, if that high government official would call me up to be his assistant, that would be a big deal. Or maybe you're a maybe you're a you know an athlete and you think, oh, I really respect this coach. If that coach would call me up to to be on the first string, that would be a big deal. Uh, maybe you're a musician and you think, oh, if I ever got to play with this musician, that would be a big deal. Well, friends, the God of the universe is saying, I want to use you to do my work, but I can't do it unless you'll push off from the false doctrine that is ruining your life. Heresy can keep us from being useful to God. In 2 Corinthians, that passage we read on being separate, he says this, Come out from among them and be separate. Don't touch what is unclean and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We've got to let go of this error-filled existence so we can be useful to God. Here's a quote that I thought was really picturesque. You remember how when Christ would, in modest prophetic pomp, once for all assert in public his claim to be the king of Israel, when he was going to do that, he sent two of his servants into the village with this message, The Lord has need of him, the humble donkey. Jesus Christ needs you to carry out his purposes. You're the humble donkey. But you get to carry the king. I don't, I don't think animals can talk. But if I was making a cartoon, this donkey would go back home like this. And he'd go in and tell his donkey friends, Hey! I just carried the king of the universe. I just carried my own creator in as he rode in his kingly procession. Yeah, I might be a donkey, but I am the top donkey. There is no honor higher 
than that I, for all my imperfections and limitations, with all my waywardness and slothfulness, should yet be taken by him and made useful by him. We are the humble donkey compared to the creator of the universe, and yet he's going, come on, I need you, I want to use you. And he says, say no to the falsehood. Move away from it. Invest yourself in knowing God's word and be a useful tool to me. Some of you remember me telling about buying a used hot tub sometime back without seeing it run. And it turns out I should have tried to see it run because as soon as I started putting water in it, the water ran out as fast as it ran in. It's got a big pipe about that big and about that long where all the jets go off the hot tub. And the water came in there, and this end was... And just walked right out like that. Well, that's why that was so cheap. I tell you what, I have got the most beautiful decoration on my lawn that you have ever seen. I got a nice patio under it. It's sitting right there. I got a new cover. It's beautiful. And absolutely useless until it gets fixed, Lord willing, this week. Are you a lawn ornament for God or a useful tool? Heavenly Father, help us. Help us because the errors of the world and the false doctrine of Satan are so slick and so subtle that we... We don't see them coming sometimes. But help us to be craftsmen with the word so that we can stay away from the false doctrine so that we can be useful to you. Make us useful animals in your stable. Help us to be ready to carry you into the world. I pray in Christ's name, amen.